No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People the Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony, and I'm joined by my co-host, Marilia Duffels, and together we hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. And today, we have a very special guest on the show, right, Marilia? Absolutely we have the, right. We have the Chief of Police for the District of Columbia, Chief Conti. And let me tell you a few things. I would read you the Chief's resume, but... It would be easier to tell you the things he hasn't done than it would be to tell you the things he's done. But these are just some of the areas that Chief Conte has 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 been in charge of in the in the police department and has been involved in. And that's intelligence, special operations division, recruiting, professional development, human resources, investigations, youth and family services, homicide and violent crimes, sexual assaults. He was the commander of the second district. It's an amazing career, Chief. Uh, you may be the most qualified person in district government. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show today. And he well, became thank you. a at the age of 17. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that is right. And, thank you so much, Senator. <laughs> and is the rarest of all things in Washington, an actual native Washingtonian. You know, there's so <laughs> many of us that have come from other places in the country, but... But uh, the chief grew up right here in Northeast. Uh, so first, chief, let me ask you, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in the room, uh, crime and safety have become the number one issues uh, this year in the election, local elections uh, for mayor, for city council. Uh, so can we talk about that for a minute? Homicides are up 200, there's 227 homicides in 2021, which is a, a, a drastic increase, and carjackings. Uh, we have, we're, for the first time that I can remember, uh, you and I live in the same ward, Chief. Uh, I've lived in Ward 3 for more than 30 years, and now people are upset because of what happened at the Days Inn and what happened at Burke. So beyond the obvious, the pandemic, what else is going on that's causing this spike in crime? It's all across the country, we understand, not just in Washington. Yeah, and thank you for that uh, question, Senator. It's a, it's a great question. You know, and I have this this discussion with, with residents. I have this discussion with major city chiefs all across our country. And the, the common themes uh, that I hear, and I believe that it, it, it is certainly uh, present here in the District of Columbia, one of the things, there is no one thing. But when you talk about accountability and the lack thereof, uh, you know, kind of where we are in that space, I, I think that that's something that we certainly have to look at. As you mentioned, certainly 
We're seeing upticks in crime all across major cities. Uh, and in my opinion, uh, after the pandemic, when or during the course of the pandemic, we're still coming out of it. But during the course of the pandemic, especially in the very early stages where we had communities and people that were isolated, isolated from support services that they were receiving, some individuals who were incarcerated uh, and then uh, released to community had probation officers where they were not necessarily checking in face to face with them. Those became text messages or Zoom calls and that kind of thing. And I think that we're just really seeing that on steroids really all across the country. Court cases backed up. All of these things really kind of compounded over the course of the pandemic that really is contributing to some of the uh, some of the violent crimes uh, that we're seeing. Uh, right now, uh, we're currently even with where we were the same time last year with 65 homicides in the District of Columbia. So, you know, not a dramatic increase there. But the bottom line, as I tell residents oftentimes, is that one homicide is one too many in any neighborhood. It doesn't matter to me where it occurs. If we have one, that's one too many. And when you're talking about 65, that's not just a number. Those are lives. Those are people. And I look at those cases, every single case in our city where a person loses their life at the hands of another, and I'm reviewing the reasons why people are losing their lives, you know, there are many in community, quite honestly, that have just lost their sense of humanity for, for their fellow man. You know, why should an argument have to end with someone's death, right? And, and the access that we see some of the young people now uh, have to firearms and they're using these firearms, it's the same all across the country. And those things are really, those things that I've outlined are really some of just the common themes that you hear all across the board. And they're very much true here in the District of Columbia. Ooh. Well, you've provided great leadership throughout East County. I have to say, I watch you and you're a keen observer of social, the psychological, and the cultural, and you do, do good outreach to the citizenry, and you're always literally on the scene, so thank you for that. Um, apart from the, the, the defunding, what do you think has, has contributed to this, or do you think the de defund police movement that kind of came about and grew to a bigger movement after the, uh, the, the issues with the, the deaths of George um, Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, and those um, folks. Um, do you think that has contributed, this defund the police movement? Do you think that has contributed to crime at all, where people feel that, you know, they can get away with things? Well, I definitely think that there uh, are some contributing factors, uh, many contributing factors, and that is certainly a part of it. Uh, I think when you talk about, you know, police officers who are, are making a decision, right, and, and now we have an educated workforce, our officers, uh, they start out, well, the minimum requirement is to have a, a, a two-year degree in associates, but um, most of our members have four-year degrees and beyond. You know, they don't necessarily have to do this work. You know, they're talented in other spaces, but when you come to a police department and you look at, you know, what the national narrative is, uh, law enforcement and the, and officers, uh, you know, the, the possibility of you taking police action, you know, now being uh, broadcast to the entire world via YouTube or something like that, even when, when, you know, when you, when your actions are justified and you're doing the right thing, you know, that interaction uh, being turned into something that it's not, you know, I think that there's, there are fear, um, there's fear amongst law enforcement officers about being that person. So, I think that when you look, and I'm talking really kind of like across the country, I think that, you know, you have some officers that uh, are maybe thinking twice about some of the actions that they take. 
But in contrast, as we look at the, the nationally what's happening there, I look at what's happening here in the Metropolitan Police Department, that despite all of that, how our officers are still stepping up to the plate. So far this year, we've already recovered a thousand illegal firearms in the District of Columbia, over a thousand. And that is about 50 percent over what we recovered the previous year. So in that space, while there is this national narrative about defund the police and there's a national narrative about the police are bad and all these things, we still have police officers that are going out there every day, putting their life on the line to take guns off the street, put bad guys in jail. Yesterday, just yesterday, I responded over to the 1700 block of uh, Benning Road, Northeast, where one of our officers was involved in a shooting. Uh, yesterday, you know, a traffic stop that resulted in them chasing an individual with a firearm, uh, and that led to a police shooting. Thankfully, nobody was injured or hurt or anything like that. But again, when you talk about what the officers are facing, uh, you talk about a defund movement. Movement. You talk about lack of accountability. Uh, when we're looking at the D.C. court system, like right now, we're twelve, twelve of I think between twelve and fourteen judges short of, of of appointments for judges to our you know superior court to hear cases. You know, we have several thousand cases uh, during the over the course of the pandemic that are backed up. So all of these things, I think, all of these things really kind of compound the issues that we're seeing in community. Of course, you know, the obvious things that people always talk about, you know, the, some of the uh, uh, educational disparities, some of the other things that we see in community where you have concentrated poverty and all of these things. I think all of those things are a contributing factor. But really, since the pandemic, uh, what's happened in the defund movement and all of that, I think that that has played a, a significant role in some of the things that we're seeing now. I think that's absolutely right. And I have to say, and I know I mentioned to you that I was part of your um, excellent community engagement academy, which which recruits citizens to sort of witness how the, the police department operates and functions and, and to sort of for us to have a look at the challenges you all face. And I have to tell you, I was I went in with, with um, expecting, you know, to, to be enlightened and, and you all doubled my expectations. And one thing that really occurred to me on the note of what you're saying is those policemen are still going out there. I don't understand how they do it. I really don't. I don't think I could do it. I know I couldn't do it. And one of your your officers mentioned during one of the talks to us that they are paid $60,000 to run towards bullets. I mean, who wants to do that? I admire their tenacity and their courage. It is an extremely difficult job. So I I am all the way with you on that. Well, thank you Look, so much for that. And, and I just want to just add this little piece, too, as well. You know, you know, regardless, of, and I, I've had this conversation with our officers before. I, I don't think there's ever an amount of money that you can pay somebody, uh, you know, to put their life on the line, to go out here and, you know, be away from their families for every activation that we have because of every First Amendment demonstration we have in the city, whether it's on a weekend, a birthday, a holiday, a wedding anniversary. Uh, I don't think that there's a dollar amount that you can put on it. But what I will say is that the officers who go out here and do it for that 60, 65,000, whatever it is, uh, they do it because they're passionate about the people that they serve in community. Uh, you know, and those are the stories that don't get told all the time. But I see it day in and day out uh, as officers are going about doing their work, 
Uh, we respond to over half a million calls for service a year. And in doing so, you know, we are impacting the lives of people. That's not always arrest. It's not always a use of force. In fact, our arrests for juveniles and adults are down considerably in, in, by comparison to what they've been in the previous years. And we've tried to take different approaches uh, to really connect with community members. So these officers do it because of their love for community, uh, because of their appreciation for the incredible responsibility that we have in policing the nation's capital. Well, you know, let me just let me just add to that. Um, uh, chief, that a lot of people don't understand that DC cops have a um, a different role than a lot of cops. You know, they got to be they got to be cops. They got to take care of tourists. They got to put up with the 535 uh, uh, 535 important people on Capitol Hill. Not to mention all the ambassadors and 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 White House people and other people that you have to walk around and all the other police departments that you have to interact with because of those uh, because of those things. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, Chief, but wasn't it the Metropolitan Police that saved the day during uh, the January 6th insurrection? Wasn't the, weren't the Capitol Police overwhelmed? And it wasn't until uh, MPD got in there that yep. the situation was stabilized? Yeah, so, you know, it was MPD, but also a lot of other agencies that were assisted, that assisted. I will tell you this, the Metropolitan Police Department certainly had the most resources uh, on the scene. We were able to get over a thousand police officers uh, down to the U.S. Capitol, and that's unmatched by any other agency that was there. Not taken away from their contribution, but it was really a collective uh, team effort, a collective law enforcement effort. Uh, we had partners from Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Virginia State Police, Maryland State Police, uh, all all these agencies there, uh, FBI, ATF, all there to assist the Capitol, you know, when it when uh, during the insurrection, uh, you know, so, you know, again, I'm not taking away anything from them, but the Metropolitan Police Department certainly had a major role in everything that was going on. And I'm just uh, I'm happy to be on the other side of that, where we can now go around the really go, literally go around the world and, and talk about. Uh, what happened here uh, in the nation's capital on January the 6th. Let, let me build on something that Marilia asked you. Uh, I had an experience that really, really amazed me. Uh, I grew up in a bad neighborhood in North New Jersey. We had pretty tough cops. Uh, I was in Anacostia one day and I got lost. This is before the before NAV systems. I got lost and I saw a U.S. Park policeman on the side of the road and I stopped and asked directions. And this guy got young black cop, got out of his car, started to give me directions when three like high school kids walked by and just said the most horrible things to him. I couldn't believe the things that they were saying to him. And the officer was so embarrassed that he looked at me and he said, yeah, these guys down here really love me. And when I left, I noticed that he got in his car and he went over and he talked to the kids. Now, the cop wasn't intimidated by the kids, but neither were the kids intimidated by the cop. And I found that so unusual. You know, we would have never said that to a police officer because we would have been afraid of the consequences. Shouldn't we be a little fearful of authority and do body cameras and defunding and all those things? That takes away from from that, do you think? 
makes so your job it, harder? It, well, I, I think that, you know, whatever we do, um, we have to do it in partnership with community because we, the reality is we need each other, right? To see safer communities, we need each other. And it's not about, you know, the level of fear that people have of law enforcement or authority of any of those things. Uh, quite frankly, I think it, it really gets down to just mutual respect for other human beings, right? And people oftentimes say things, uh, very mean things, very nasty things to police officers. And certainly I've had some police officers who have said some unkind things uh, to members in community. But in that space, that's certainly where body-worn cameras and that kind of thing come into play. Cops actually like the body-worn camera, right, now, after it's being introduced because there are a lot of bogus complaints that get made. And when we go back, you know, to to review the interaction between the law enforcement official and the person making complaints, oftentimes you find out, well, maybe it's not exactly as it was initially reported that, you know, this thing happened or that thing uh, happened, right? And sometimes people make these these um, uh, reports against police officers. And, you know, it's, again, it's not it's not always, you know, the, the total truth. But again, it's not to say that the police don't mess up sometimes because we do. But I recall a time when I was coming up that, you know, some of the things that I've heard said to police officers on body-worn camera, I would never say to a police officer. But I also find that sometimes these same individuals will talk to people in community the same way. Uh, sometimes, if it's young people, sometimes uh, they'll talk to their parents that way. And so it's not necessarily just law enforcement, but I think that we have to get back to a space where there is just mutual respect uh, between the, per the public that we serve and the law enforcement officers who are providing uh, that service to communities. We want communities to be safe, uh, but in order to have a safe community, we got to start, uh, I think, at ground zero, just mutual respect for each other. Well, I agree. And I got to say, I've never lied to a police officer. I I can remember saying, no, officer, the light was green. I'm sure it was green when I went through it. Uh, uh, but, but yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a matter of respect. And what you said earlier uh, about the, the public space, when you hear about people shooting each other after pickup baseball games or yeah. pickup basketball games, you got to say to yourself, yeah. What what may have what may have ended up as a bloody nose when I was yep. a kid uh, uh, is turned into something else. So let me ask you the big thing: guns, guns, guns. Is that is that our biggest problem? You know, uh, access to guns and ghost guns and 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 uh, all this nonsense. We have tough gun laws. What do we do about yeah. that? They come in from yeah. Virginia and Maryland. Yeah, so it's a huge problem, uh, these firearms. Uh, you know, and I was I was talking to some colleagues recently from uh, Memphis, Tennessee, uh, as uh, some some place uh, someplace else is, that's escaping me right now, where they have like permitless carry in in their states. And I'm you know, hey, look, I don't have any issues with Second Amendment or anything like that. But man, we sure do have some people in our communities that will get a hold of a firearm and they will use it to resolve a traffic dispute. Uh, they will use it to resolve a, a simple argument over, you know, just foolishness. And that just does not make for a safe, for a safe community. When you have people who will fly off the handle so quickly and because they have access to a firearm, immediate access to a firearm, you know, that is very that 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 is scary for a lot of people to include our police officers. When I look back just over this past weekend, uh, we recovered over 20 illegal firearms, 
of those 20 that we recovered, they were in possession, being possessed by nine people that were uh, that were felons in possessions of firearms, meaning that they already been convicted for a prior felony, and now these individuals are in possession of firearms. So, you know, we there's no secret about you know the individuals who are involved in in, in some of the crimes that they're involved in in the space. But when you add a gun to the mix, my God, that just that that just takes the situation to a different level, and unfortunately, we see people losing their lives unnecessarily because somebody, in the course of an argument, uh, had access to to a firearm. Oftentimes, again, the firearms are illegal. Firearms are are, are manufactured, and I mean, at one point, and this still is, you know, certainly people will traffic firearms into the city from some of the surrounding jurisdictions. D.C. is a consumer state for firearms. We're not a producer. We are a consumer state. And so most of the firearms here, they do come from Virginia and Georgia and North Carolina, some from Maryland, et cetera, uh, sort of like, you know, New York. New York is also a consumer state. And some of the firearms in New York, as an example, come from some of the, mo- the, uh, the more southern states or so those places south of, uh, of Washington, D.C., but in that in that space, it's not necessarily the gun. It's the, the the gun in the hands of the person who don't have a problem with using it that makes our communities unsafe. Yeah, Marilia. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to uh, ask you about training of mm. the police force um, and how how is that suffering or or, or faring under this whole defund because i know the mayor defunded um after all this talk but yet she's spending 9.4 million dollars on 85 speed cameras um i know that we've had an upsurge in traffic accidents and death but i just imagine that the police department is being affected by the defunding not just in other uh things that we've discussed but training so can you speak to that please yeah, so, you know, actually the mayor requested a $30 million budget enhancement for the Metropolitan Police Department uh, for this fiscal year. Um, I, you know, there's voting, obviously, that's going on uh, with respect to what we will actually get. But when you talk about training and how we are faring as a police agency, uh, we are struggling like a lot of other police agencies. I was just uh, a little earlier looking at our numbers as an example, right? Last, last, in January of last year, we roughly had close to about 3,800 uh, police officers or, or 3,799 in that, in that neighborhood, close to 3,800. And as I look at our numbers as of today, we are at 3,501. You know, that's almost a reduction of over 300 police officers in a very, very, very short period of time. So, oh, yeah. yes, we need to do training. And, yes, we, we have a, 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 a robust uh, training curriculum for our officers once we get them through the door. But when you hire police officers or you stop hiring police officers, as you mentioned, kind of doing that that period of defund, when you stop hiring police officers, it's not like, you know, if you decide you're going to hire a, a, a bartender or you're going to hire somebody to, you know, work at an office and you get right. a resume, you do a couple of reference checks. It's not like that. It takes time because they're uh, physical things that they go got to go through, polygraphs that they got to go through, and you know other life and work history stuff that you have to go through before you can actually hire a police officer and get them into a seat in the academy. And then once you get them in the seat, 
Then there's six or seven months of training. So there are several months from the point that they get hired to the point that they actually make it onto the streets of the District of Columbia. You know, that is a considerable uh, period of time. And in that space, when you are dealing with, a re- you know, a reduced workforce and we're training and doing all the things that we got to do to produce a good product, a good quality officer, you know, it's just it's, it's, it's challenging in this space. So, you know, again, people that are making decisions about work, right? Do I want to go into a police department or agency where, you know, it's, you know, all this defund and, you know, the police can't do this or that or whatever. Do I want to go in that environment? Or, you know, do I choose to go someplace else? And, I, and I, you know, I want to say for the Metropolitan Police Department, when we look at where we are right now as an agency, some of the, uh, the changes that have been made, policy changes that have been made to make sure that we are in the forefront of making sure that the things that we do are not adversarially impacting the communities that we serve, right? So I want to make sure that the training is consistent with best practices for law enforcement agencies, and we're training people to ensure that when they go out into the field that they're doing things that make communities safe and not making communities worse off than where they were before by overly incarcerating and doing things like that. We have great officers here in this police department and some of the best training in the Mm -hmm. country. And my goal is really to make sure that we stay at the forefront. Well, you know what, Chief, this is a great time to uh, have a $30 million budget put in because it's an election year. And I've noticed that the uh, city council, which basically uh, caused you to have a hiring freeze uh, in in the police department has now changed course, you know, because, uh, Citizens like cops. They like police on the street. It makes them feel safe. And during a political year, you're you're more likely to get uh, more of what you want than, than than any other time. But let me ask you something. Uh, I was on the neighborhood watch when I was on Capitol Hill. I was involved in two crimes, two two rather serious crimes. One involved a gun. Both of them, uh, both of them resulted in arrests. They resulted in arrest because I called the police and I brought them in. And I had a cop say to me, uh, you know, thank you for being a good citizen. And I told him, it struck me as funny. I said, I'm not being a good citizen. I grew up in a bad neighborhood. And my grandmother would tell you that you call the police when you see your neighbor's house being broken into because uh, if the police don't catch him, he'll be back to break into your house. So it really was not a matter of citizenship as much as it was a matter that we felt we had a stake in the community and that we had a role in protecting ourselves. You know, even if that was just to be the ears and the eyes of the the police department in my neighborhood, in my Italian neighborhood, the neighborhood watch was old Italian women. You know, if you walked into my neighborhood, my grandmother didn't know you. She'd walk up to you and ask you who you were and, and you know, and what you were doing, you know. And have we lost that? Have we lost that? Do we do we not? In that same incident, let me I don't want to digress here. But in that same incident, a woman came forth and said that one of the perpetrators that had been arrested tried to break into her house the day before. But she was able to shove him out the front door and, and lock it. And the police officer said to her, did you report that? And she said, well, no, he was black. And I, you know, I just didn't want to seem racist. It was a white woman. And the cop said, are you crazy? 
Do you know what he might have done to you if he broke into the house? You know, so do we have less of that involvement in, with the community? So, in, you know, in I have, so I have a saying, and that is simply this. Uh, people respond differently depending on their proximity to the pain. And in communities, uh, oftentimes, if people are not directly impacted by whatever the thing is, you know, some people will just, you know, keep to themselves or not, not necessarily say anything. We have certainly have people in community who, who will cooperate uh, with law enforcement officers, you know, but that varies depending on the community that you happen to be in. Uh, our most success, the, where the places where we see the most success are those places where we have the best relationships uh, with community members. And that goes across the spectrum, all across this city, and not just one particular war, all across the war. There are areas in some of the toughest neighborhoods in our city, but they have a very, very, very good uh, beat officer who knows everybody in that block, and people will call that officer and talk to him and relay information to him. So I would not say that it's all loss. I can tell you that over my 30-some year history, I think that um, that we have lost some ground in this space, and I think that as a result of some of the negative narratives that have played out over the course of the years about relationships between law enforcement officers and community members, uh, I think that that has certainly contributed uh, to where we are right now. Uh, you will hear some young people talk about no snitching or even some older people about no snitching, which I, well, I think is just one of the most ignorant things that a person could say. Uh, again, when you're talking about crime that happens in your neighborhood, you know, you look out for your neighbors so that if, if you call in because somebody is doing something that they shouldn't be doing, perhaps you stop that person from breaking into your house or someone who exactly. you love, you know, into their house. So, you know, I, I've just never understood. I mean, I, gr granted, I grew up in D.C., that was all oftentimes said in my neighborhood. So I, I get that, but it's just not something that, that makes a lot of sense to me that people would not want to see a safer community by not calling out uh, a bad behavior and having that bad behavior addressed by the authorities that have the responsibility for addressing it. Yeah. Um, let me also ask you on a lighter note, the convoy's on its way back, Chief. Have you heard the news? I heard the news this morning that this, and for those listeners that don't know what the convoy is, it's a bunch of truckers that got together and decided that they were going to screw up traffic in the District of Columbia because they don't like uh, mask mandates. Uh, I don't know what uh, commuters have to do with uh, mask mandates, but evidently they thought that that was the, the right way to protest. And they're now suing the police department for violation of their First Amendment rights. Isn't that a crazy lawsuit? You can't do just anything you want to express yourself, can you? Yeah, well, you know, it, it was never our intention to stop anybody from expressing their First Amendment rights. I mean, we welcome people to, into our city. I mean, we have a large demonstration this weekend. We'll welcome a lot of people to express their First Amendment rights. But uh, last time I checked, I don't think there's anything about, uh, you know, we having to allow you to do that with a truck. Uh, so in that space, uh, we welcome and we've tried to work with uh, organizers of these uh, protests to, hey, look, if you want to go to a staging location and you want to make your way into the 
city, you know, we, we will, you know, we can, we can, we'll escort you on foot or whatever. But we did not want to see here in Washington, D.C., uh, the likes of what we saw in Ottawa. That's just not acceptable. It's not acceptable to, uh, to our residents. It's not acceptable to our visitors. Uh, not acceptable to people who absolutely have nothing to do uh, with, you know, the, the, the reasons that, that have been outlined as to why, you know, they just wanted to come to D.C. and make things very difficult for, you know, for the people of the District of Columbia. Uh, I don't think it's, it's fair to the citizens here. So uh, I will certainly do everything within my power uh, to help to uh, come up with strategies for the best way to mitigate that, to include having discussions with those individuals to try to figure out, you know, what what is an acceptable um, you know, what's an, accept, an acceptable accommodation where they can still express their First Amendment rights. We facilitated a truck coming into the into the city with uh, Senator Cruz to uh, go to a meeting on Capitol Hill. I mean, we facilitated all that stuff. But again, you know, to have hundreds and hundreds of people, as we saw in Ottawa, uh, stop commerce and, you know, stop people from being able to get to the hospital if, if, if an ambulance needed to get to. I, I just think that's unacceptable. And we, we, we can't go for that here in the city. Well, let me just add to that, that I was arrested in front of the Senate and I went to trial. And at the end of the trial, the judge said to me, you're my hero. I admire people that stand up for what they believe in. But even a hero can't sit in the middle of the damn street and block traffic. You're guilty. So I was found guilty and fined $100. So, you know, you can protest, but you've got to be willing to accept the consequences, evidently. So, uh, hey, I, I um, totally agree with that. And again, we will, with this group, you know, we will do what we can to try to accommodate uh, and help facilitate their First Amendment uh, right to free speech. We do it every day. I think we're one of the best agencies in the country uh, who, who do this work. As you mentioned at the very top, you know, I mean, here in the nation's capital, I mean, it's just not your run-of-the-mill, you know, police department where, you know, we're just locking up bad guys kind of thing. I mean, in, in addition to all those other things, you know, there are major, major, major demonstrations and things happening in our city weekly, and we have to be responsive to those things to ensure a safe environment for all those who come and visit our city. Amen. Well, yeah, amen. And let me just say, the, the, give the rest of the story uh, about that trial. That trial happened in traffic court because we don't prosecute a lot of our own crimes, right, Chief? So recently we had a situation where somebody dog napped, somebody stole a dog, I think it was on Connecticut Avenue, at gunpoint and robbed the people not only of the dog, but I think of other personal possessions. And the federal government has decided not to prosecute these people. Is, first of all, is that correct? And, and how much does that interfere with, with law enforcement here in the district? So, so in that particular situation, um, you know, we're working with our law enforcement partners uh, in the, prosecutor, the prosecutor space. Um, I think that case is on the grand jury uh, right now, so it's not totally, um, it's not totally just over with and done. Uh, there's still work that's being done uh, on that case to to try to bring a better case uh, before the court or one that the prosecutors are comfortable with moving forward. And these decisions happen, you know, daily, right? We, the Metropolitan Police Department, law enforcement officers. Uh, you know, the burden of proof for us is probable cause in order for us to make a, make an arrest. Uh, for these prosecutors to move a case forward, uh, they their burden of proof is is, is is higher. It's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's a different standard. So 
oftentimes they will make decisions based upon that proof beyond a reasonable doubt standard and make a determination on whether or not they want to proceed with a case right now or whether or not they want to bring that case later on. Now, it's frustrating as heck for the police officer who's gone out there, made an arrest of a guy, and the case gets no paper, and that guy's back out in community, or you arrested a guy with a gun, and now we got to wait six months for his DNA to come back on it before we can arrest the guy again. I mean, that is frustrating for an officer who's out there putting his life on the line. Unfortunately, you know, it's the system uh, that, that we are part of. And I think that the system is best when residents and people who are impacted by these types of things are making their voices known, making their voices known to law enforcement and holding us accountable, to prosecutors and holding them accountable, and to the court and holding them accountable as well for the decisions and outcomes that happens with, you know, with these cases. And I'm not specifically talking about cases where you have uh, you know, a jury trial or something, and the decision is made. I'm talking about when decisions are being made about whether or not a person should be released back out into community or held until trial, those types of things. If the community is not seeing what the community expects to see in this space, uh, for example, somebody commits a carjacking or a robbery or something like that, that person gets presented to court, and then that person is released into community the next day. As a community member, as a taxpaying citizen of the District of Columbia, I fundamentally have a problem with that. I don't care what the system is. As a taxpayer and as a citizen, I have a problem with that. And I'm sure that there are other community members that do as well. But there are also community members who says, hey, you know, this system has, you know, it's it's over, overly punitive and, you know, people have a right to, 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 um, to be free until their trial or right to bond and all these things. And there are different views on this, this very same issue. There are a lot of people who have different views. I express my personal view. Again, I understand my professional responsibility, which is to enforce the law. And whatever happens, the outcomes and prosecutorial decisions and so forth, I think that's where the community gets to play a key role in making sure that those who are in leadership positions are ensuring that the community's desires and wishes are being carried out. Uh, but, you know, as you already pointed out, Chief, we're 12 judges short. And doesn't the fact that we don't prosecute our own crimes, that we don't send perpetrator or, or convicted criminals to jail here in the District of Columbia, but we send them off to Texas and California and God knows where, doesn't this all impact what you have to do? I mean, our argument in being a state is that yeah. we want to take control of all these functions. You think yeah. that would reduce crime if we were able to do that? Well, I mean, that, that, that would be a stretch, honestly, for me to say that. I, I think that, you know, when, for example, and I, I know that there are a lot of differing opinions on the issue of, uh, you know, our prisoners, for example, where they're held, whether they're in a, a prison in Pennsylvania or Kentucky or Alabama versus here in the District of Columbia. I mean, I've been around this city long enough to remember uh, you know, b before we got to this space, when we, you know, had our prisoners down in Lorton and we had our Lord. prisoners... Uh, you know, in, in D.C. jail and, and in, because of the, 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 the conditions and all that kind of stuff and the financial piece to that, it was, it was thought at that time that it was better, you know, to, once the federal government got involved to put people in some of these other uh, facilities. And in terms of wh how that plays into reducing crime, you know, just, this is just me. You know, if, if I knew that I was going to be in prison and be uh, sent off to Kentucky 
and the likelihood of my family being able to visit me and that kind of thing, that could be a deterrent for me. Uh, but for some other person, uh, you know, having, you know, hey, look, if I get sent to prison or sentenced and I'm doing all my time right down the road and all that kind of stuff, I don't know if that's necessarily uh, a deterrent uh, to crime or, or or we would immediately see see reductions in crime because people are now fearing that, hey, look, I'm going to do real time like right here in my backyard. I think the issue is a little broader than that or actually a lot broader than that. I think criminals, a small group of them, that is, I think that they make uh, decisions not really necessarily thinking about those consequences. But when we talk about how the Metropolitan Police Department, you know, their role in all of this, really our role is on the front end uh, of that. You know, before they get to the, uh, you know, where where they're going to spend two years, three years, four years, our role is on the front end in the prevention space uh, to the extent that we can. And when people do commit crimes, making sure that we hold them accountable. I was sharing with somebody the other day, uh, for example, you know, our uh, closure rate, when you talk about uh, robberies in the District of Columbia, I'll, I'll just kind of use that uh, as an example. We were looking at, at the robbery closure rate for, uh, for, for D.C. The national average for robbery closures is 24%, but in D.C. it's like 33%, which is above the national average. So in that space, you know, we're holding people accountable by locking them up. Like, that's our job. But the prosecution, the, the you know, the what happens when they go to court and what happens once they get sentenced, you know, that's all part of the ecosystem where I think the community needs to really have more visibility into what the outcomes are. Absolutely. Really? Yeah, speaking of community, Chief, um, one of the things that really struck me, not that I didn't know this, because if you live in D.C., you know that the problems associated with poverty and the problems with crime sort of come out of the, uh, the two wards, seven and eight. But what um, was revealed to me was, and you can speak to this better, but I think it's called the Shot Spotters, which is an app that the police have that tells them in advance of them having to go to the scene of the crime what what where these shots are being fired and it really struck home um that it was mostly ward seven and eight it was incredible you could see this on the screen you guys showed it to us as it happens um shots being fired. It was all Ward 7 and 8. And to me, that points to something that is something, it's a drum that I beat all the time, but I think it's for good reason, because it's not really talked about a lot, except by academics and social workers. Um, But it's a tragic and sad cycle of a terrible environment that is associated with poverty, that leads to crime in adulthood. Nobody sets out to say, I'm going to become a criminal. Um, And when people crimes typically it's it doesn't come out of the front part of your brain that's the thinking and reasoning part of the brain it's it's emotional and and it can be a need of course but it's a complex issue and i know that it's not up to the police department but um it's it's a complex issue and of course we don't have time to parse it all um but i think you know what i'm talking about and it's it's a social psychological um, aspect of these people, of the lives that these children lead, a life often of neglect and, and abuse and pr- lack of proper nutrition as a child and even prenatally. And it's something that needs to be addressed because I think before that is fully addressed and made um, 
uh, known to, to people outside of Ward 7 and 8. I, I, we're always going to have crime problems. because and, and my heart goes out to these people. It really does. Because it, it, it was something that was, um, you know, like I said, you're not born asking to be a criminal and you don't grow up wishing to be a criminal. These are a complex, complex set of circumstances that these people face typically as children. And I've been involved with the sort of the neurobiology behind this and the sociology sociology and the the psychology behind it and it is complex and it is there and and i think more resources need to be put into but smart resources not just knee-jerk reaction resources um that Mm -hmm. resources that rely on science and i think also the communities outside of board seven and eight need to sort of reach out to the seven and eight um, and there needs to be a sort of um, a, a friendship or, or a communications involved because I think these people feel marginalized and they feel like outcasts, like they're not part of the greater, the big society. Yeah, no, you know, I, I certainly hear you there. And uh, when you talk about ShotSpotter, just for, for everyone's uh, clarity, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a system that we pay for where there are sensors uh, that are um, in different places all around the city. Uh, the reason why Ward 8 and Ward 7 show up a lot is because that's generally has been the two areas where we see the most homicides in our city, the most violent crime uh, in our city. But we have sensors all over the place. And with those sensors uh, being deployed in those communities, covering a large parts of the ward, what the officers are able to see in their vehicle or on their phone, I can see it on my phone, is when these shootings do occur, uh, it gives us a focal point. And oftentimes, as you mentioned, before a call comes into 911 to say that a person has been shot, you know, we will hear uh, those shots on ShotSpotter, you know, that there were five shots in the whatever hundred block or whatever street. And that allows us to start going to that location to canvas for victims and witnesses and all of that kind of stuff. And that's very helpful uh, when you're talking about investigating uh, gun crime. It helps us to determine sometimes whether or not, you know, there was a shootout between multiple people. Uh, you know, so we, we don't, it's technology that is helpful to us. Uh, we're proud to have it as a as a major city uh, police department, but you know, just it just kind of to your point, it really kind of speaks to uh, one the need for it in the community. Why 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 do we have it deployed? Well, because there are a lot of shootings in these areas, and why do we have a lot of shootings in these areas? Well, it's all those other things that you mentioned, right? The concentrated poverty and the the lack of opportunity for some people, and just a, a you know co- just compounding issues, generational poverty, I mean, just all kinds of things that uh, oftentimes happen in, in communities that uh, contribute to some of, the, some of the levels of violence that we, that we see. But I believe that D.C., I've been here all my life, that this is a very strong city, that we are a resilient city, and I know that us working together, that we'll get better as a city. I think that there are enough residents uh, who are in close proximity to the pain wherever they live in the city. It's not just these two wars, but wherever you live in the city, you are close enough to the pain that people are paying attention to what's happening in the space of public safety. And on top of that, I think that as a result, people want to see 
something different. And I think, you know, when you talk about support for the law enforcement agency here in the District of Columbia, support for law enforcement in general, and to look at not just accountability, but also opportunities, I think that's how we're going to see uh, a safer D.C., a better D.C., a stronger D.C., uh, a more um, a D.C. that's really a, a one D.C. I think that we see it in that space as we continue to work on these problems together. Well, we're almost uh, we're running out of time here, Chief. So let me ask you, um, when I was six years old, I had a cop save me. When I was 17 years old, I got beat up by a cop. We all saw George Floyd. Uh, We know there are good cops and bad cops. How do you keep the good cops and get rid of the bad cops? That must be a real challenge for somebody in an administrative position uh, to, to, you know, to to create an environment that that promotes good cops and 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 you know tries to weed out bad cops how 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 much of a challenge is that yeah so i think one well first of all i would say that you know most most of the the really good cops you know can't stand bad cops either so that's a good thing right that they don't they don't want them on they don't want them on the police department because it makes it makes the good cops it makes their jobs twice as hard right when you got to go in and clean up behind some guy who's come in and disrespect the community or something like that. You know, I mean, those things make for a difficult day at the office. Uh, that uh, that being, being said, uh, I think that you have to celebrate and promote uh, those things that you want to continue to see. And it's not traditionally those things in the past where we only celebrate, you know, the amount of arrest a person makes or you know, uh, or, you know, who the, who the, who the, who the toughest cop is on the block or something like that. I'm, I'm, I mean, that's, that's not a real thing, but you know, we don't have a quota system or anything like that, but I'm saying that you have to celebrate, for example, how you keep the good cops. You have to celebrate cops that are out there doing the things that you want, who are engaging in community, locking up bad guys, not generating a bunch of complaints because they're disrespecting community. They're able to, to, you know, they're more than just a one trick pony. You know, they can go out and engage in community in the one minute and then the next minute they got to lock up a bad guy with a gun. They can do that too. You know what I mean? And I think that that's the, the ideal world uh, where we want to be. You have to make it uncomfortable for those people uh, who would go out here and violate uh, our public trust when it comes to community members. And when I say you know, like like really make it uncomfortable for them. I'm talking about through your policies. I'm talking about when it comes to your discipline, uh, when people do things that are that are contrary to the values of the agency. I think that's the way that you keep uh, the best cops and get rid of. You're going to lose some people along the way. Oh, we don't agree with the direction things are going. And that's fine. Because if you're all about going out here disrespecting citizens, then I don't want you to be a member of this police department. If you go out here going, if you're intent to go out here to tarnish this brand of the Metropolitan Police Department, I don't need you here. Right. You know, so I want to make sure that we have a police department that respects the values of this agency, but more importantly, respects the communities that we serve. And it's not to say that we don't have a tough job and that, you know, we have obstacles to overcome. And no, we don't want 
people talking to us any kind of way. But you know what? We we run after bullet. We run after we run to the sounds of gunshots. Right. When everybody else is running the other way, we run towards it. So, it, you know, it's just really kind of part of the, the landscape of the job that, that we have. And while we are doing it uh, again, I said at the very top, a lot of people do this because this is a space that they're passionate about. And that is serving communities. So, you know, when you want to keep the good cops, you got to keep rewarding these good cops for the great things that they're doing. Sometimes that's through, uh, you know, in the not too distant future or right now, there's contract negotiation stuff that's going on. You know, how does the city or how does that play out in terms of, uh, you know, uh, what happens with our officers in that space? You know, I'm sure that they're going to be asking for raises and all that. You know, do we say, ah, you know, that now, that now, that, you know, what, what do we do in that space? So those kinds of things. I think are things that really help to keep good cops. And the last thing I would say is, you know, one of the uh, when the mayor sent up her her uh, budget proposal, uh, she put in a lot of things in this budget that we were asking for to really keep good cops and to attract good cops. Uh, one, we want them to, if they can, live in the District of Columbia, but we wanted to make it affordable by offering them uh, a, a housing allowance for uh, for twelve for uh, twelve months. That uh, I think it's like one thousand dollars a month that would help uh, them to, you know, offset whatever their um, uh, residential ex- expenses are. But that would also help them to come and fall in love with the city, just like we are uh, have, and 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 hopefully remain here, uh, purchasing of take-home vehicles, also uh, a signing bonus for police officers to attract them to our city, to separate us from some of the other agencies. Metro Transit is right now backyard, and they're offering like a $10,000 signing bonus. But if officers, uh, you know, see that, hey, look, here's a city that's serious about their police officers, and they're willing to invest in those officers, those are things that attract good cops and that keep good cops, and we want to do more of that. Well, uh, Richard J. Conti III, police chief, thank you so much for being with us. It's my personal opinion that you're one of the good cops, and I hope we keep you for a very, very long time. We appreciate you, uh, your your uh, efforts to reach out to the community and to reach out to us, and I hope you'll come back and join us again sometime. Senator, thank you so much. I really appreciate your kind words, sir, and I look forward to continue working uh, working hard for the residents of the District of Columbia, sir. Yeah, and then next time you drive past the sign, stop by and say hello. I will, sir. I see your car okay. parked out there, so I just want to make sure you park legally, too, by the way. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, now i got to run out and check it. <laughs> All right. Thanks. It's been a pleasure, Thanks sir. So All right. Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote. Give the people their right to vote.